So that's Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and as they say, the rest is history. But the question is, what sort of history? That is, what is God's involvement in world history after creating the heavens and the earth? And with that, not only God's involvement, what is ours meant to be? Now, as you ask those questions, there are all sorts of views around us. View one, well, goes back to there is no creator. The people who think we're on our own, but of course not so. We've seen that God created the heavens and the earth. So many don't believe it, but we believe that God created it all. That's view one. Then there's view two, which is, well, maybe there is a creator, but after he set it all up in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, he's just left us to it. As if he is that watchmaker who crafts his timepiece, winds it up, and then steps back to see what happens, the end of his involvement. Since then, we've been on our own. Now, again, Christians in principle certainly don't believe that, but how about in practice? Well, that's view two. Then there's view three, which is there is a creator. He runs everything. Yes, he's got a plan. He's actively involved. He's working it all out. But this is believed so much so, really, that we don't have any meaningful role in that. Basically, it's our job to sit back and to watch as God does his thing. Again, not so, as we'll see. Which brings us to view four, also known as Genesis 2. And this chapter is going to show us more of what God has done, is doing, and is going to do in this world which he made, and also the beginnings of how we fit into it. 
But actually, to see Genesis 2 properly, we have to keep in mind what's come already. And so we're going to begin by recapping Genesis 1. So do turn there if you are not. Genesis chapter 1, you'll also need the outline, from, uh, which is on the reverse of the uh, notice sheet of where we're going. And we're going to look at Genesis 1, highlighting particularly what it tells us about God's work of forming and filling You'll see what I mean. So God's very first creative action is described in the first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From nothing, God created matter. But that really was just the initial step because, verse 2, then the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So now the creation is there, but look at the first thing we are told about it. It is without form and void. So without form, it hasn't got any shape or structure or order. It's void, that is, it's empty. There's a lack of stuff in this. And then it's this formlessness and emptiness that God does something about as we read on for the next six days of creation. So how did God create the world? I hope if anyone asks you that, you know the answer, by speaking. That's what we're told, simply by speaking. And there's that repeated phrase, isn't there, throughout the chapter, and God said. In fact, six days, each day begins with that phrase, and God said. But then as we pay attention, we notice in the accounts of days three and six, there are extra and God saids. And that leads to the simple table that I've put there in the outline. But then as we look at that table and see how this is structured, we realize God creates in such a way that addresses those problems we were told about in the second verse. So have a look. First, God does his forming, that is creating order. And he does it by separating things. So day one, the light from the dark. Then day two, the sea from the sky. Day three, the land from the water. And then after that, after the forming, God then fills what he has made. So we go on down the other side of the table, day four, we have the sun, the moon, and the stars to fill the day and the night. Day five, we have the fish and the birds to fill respectively the sea and the sky. And then day six, land creatures and humanity, in particular then, to fill the land that God has formed. So we see this pattern. God creates by forming and then filling. If you like, that is God's work week. But we might ask, well, why did God do it like this? Presumably, God could have clicked his fingers, if he had any fingers, and uh, created all in one go, immediately, just like that. Of course he could. But no, God is setting here, isn't he, a pattern in his work Presumably so that those created in his image, that is us, can learn from it, understand better our role. We begin to see this in what God then says to those he's created to fill those various spaces. Verse 22, God speaks to the fish and the birds. Look what he says, chapter 1, verse 22, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Do you see what God is doing? He is talking to them to say fill. And then verse 28, this time it's to humanity. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
So a moment ago I said that God filled on days four to six, which is true. But on days five and six, we maybe it would have been better to say God began to fill because there is more filling to be done. It's still God's work, but it's done through others, other creatures, and most of all, people. And so from Genesis 1, we are being told this is what we, humanity, were created to do. Okay, so we need to fill. But how do we go about doing that? Well, that command came in verse 28. I mean, have you ever noticed then two verses which tell us much in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 1? God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Having heard that, listen after the repetition in verse 30. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Did you notice in both verses, God gives plants for the sake of food. So that's the way that we and the animals will do our work of being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth. So here's the summary where we've got to the end of chapter one. Six days, God has created the heavens and the earth. And by the end of those days, while we are there, humanity, and we know there is work for us to do. And those last couple of verses show we've been given the resources that we need to do it. So by the end of chapter one, we should be thinking, okay, we are to get to it. There is work to do. So we want to know more, though, about how to go about doing that. And that brings us to chapter two. But before that, we do need to realize, well, what is the purpose of God's creative activity? Why did God do this? Why all this forming and filling? Where is it heading? What's, if you like, God's work for? And not just God's work, that might help us to know what our work then is for. Because it turns out being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, well, that is not an end in itself. We were not made simply to work or to have children or to save the planet for future generations. So why were we made? Well, we see here at the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, two complementary answers to that question. Why were we made? First, we heard that we were made in the image of God. It's there in verses 26 and 27. We thought about this. We were made in the image of God, which means we can reflect God's glory in a unique way in all creation. And so just think what that means then. If humanity does then spread through all the earth, well, that means more of God's glory will be on display in all the world. That's the first reason or first complementary way of looking at why we were made. The second one is given in the opening three verses of chapter two, which we heard about last week, God's rest. Do you remember? God created, finished his creative work, and then he rested. And we saw how this day is really the climax of the creation account. It's very special. It's blessed. It's holy. It's set apart. We don't get more detail really yet at this point, but we can tell this is what we were made for, to share in this rest with our creator. So now we are ready to look into chapter two. What then of this work that we were made to do? Well, we begin 
by seeing that the Lord's God's work of forming, the Lord God's work of forming. Verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What's happening here? Beginning of chapter two, we'll be given another view of God's creative activity. Again, the primary focus clearly from that verse is on God. Making the heavens and the earth is his work. There are a couple of key words or phrases in this verse. The first is generations. That'll be important for the whole of book of Genesis. We'll think a little bit more about that next week. But the second very important phrase to notice in this verse is how God is described. Did you notice? He's described as the Lord God, Lord in capital letters, which is a change from chapter one. Chapter one, God was simply described as God in lowercase. But now, immediately after we've been told about the rest of the seventh day, he is called the Lord God. And read through the next couple of chapters, and that repeatedly is the name used for him. So we ask, don't we, why? Well, you actually have to read on all the way to Exodus before you get a full explanation of that. We're not going to do that now. But in brief, this name Lord, when we see it in capital letters, it doesn't mean Lord as in ruler or master directly. Rather, Lord in capital letters like, is like Yahweh. It's God's personal name. The name God has given by which he can be known by people. Isn't that remarkable? God wants a relationship with those he has made. That really was the focus of that seventh day that we might share this relationship with him. That's where humanity is heading. Well, with that in mind, let's go back to this second creation account, chapter two. It continues, obviously, from verse five. And maybe when it was first read, you all thought, well, this is a bit underwhelming. Where's the action? It's all about plants. Why is that? Well, hopefully, having spent a bit of time in chapter one, we're in a better place to see. Now, first of all, look again at your table. Look how vegetation and humanities are the culmination of God's activities on days three and six. They seem to go together. And then we saw in verses 29 and 30, as I read them out, that a plants are the resources that are needed to provide food for people who will then play their part in God's plan to fill the earth. So we need plants and people. But you get into chapter two, verse five, the issue is we're told there are no bushes of the field or small plants of the field. What is that actually getting at? Well, put simply, bushes of the field are the kinds of vegetation that would simply grow in the wild if the conditions were right. And then the small plants of the field are then the cultivated grains, the kind of plants that need to be cultivated and farmed by people. But obviously, as we begin this section, there are problems for both types of plants. Because look how the second half of verse 5 tells us, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. So that means no bushes of the field will grow in the wild. And we're told there was no man to work the ground. So you wouldn't get either then the small plants of the field. So the point is, by the time you get to the end of this verse, there is no chance of plants or really people. So therefore, filling the earth, God's plan, at this point seems like it's not going to happen. 
Except, of course, chapter 1 told us there would be plants for food and people given by God. So then we get the explanation of verse 6, that the Lord acts. For a start, he causes rain, which comes via this mist or rain clouds, which water the ground. Now, last Sunday, I cycled home from church in the driving wind and rain of Storm Franklin. It was such fun. The guy on the bike in front of me literally got blown off his bike. Uh, I did check. He was fine. But for some reason, he decided to walk his bike from there. I don't know why. But then when I did get home, I can be honest and tell you, I wasn't particularly thankful for the experience I just had and all that rain. And yet Genesis 2 does want to change our thinking about things like rain, because it's the reason we're alive. And here in central London, we are maybe more likely to forget this than others. We're not so aware of our dependence on the land. But without rain, no plants. Without plants, no animals. Without animals, no food. And no us. Do you remember hearing about or learning about the water cycle at school? Evaporation, condensation, precipitation, collection. How were you taught it? Was it a purely impersonal process which now science can explain? Or did you get pointed to Genesis 2? It is the Lord who sends rain and withholds it. Do you remember view 2 earlier? that one where God sets up the creation and leaves us to it. Of course, we don't agree with that in principle, but all too often we act like it in practice. As if rain, well, it just happens. In fact, we only ever think of rain as an annoyance when it gets in the way of our plans. Therefore, food on the table, well, it just happens. I know I'm stating the obvious, but Genesis 2 wants us to grasp the obvious and actually believe it. Isn't it a travesty that with God's help, humanity around the world has worked out how better to fill the earth and, for example, bringing a stunning array of foodstuffs to our table, utterly remarkable. And yet all around us, humanity says, well, it just happened mechanicalistically, mechanically, impersonalistically. I mean, all those things. Surely, Genesis 2 is telling us, surely when we see that, we shouldn't have slipped into that worldly way of assuming it'll just happen. Surely when we see this, have all that we need and more, we think, I must give thanks to the God who provides. That should be our instinctive response. Or when the basics are lacking, as they often are, around the world. Is that simply a sign the cosmic machine is broken? There's nothing really we can do about it. Or could we cry out to the one who does truly provide? It turns out this is a theme that's going to run and run through the Bible. God's reign, the provision it gives, it's underlined in so many ways. A few verses on your sheet. Even in Genesis, you read on Noah's day, the Lord sent rain, lots of it. And then Genesis has lots of famines. You'll remember the third one, Joseph and Pharaoh. When the people get out of Egypt, and then head towards the land. Before they go in, God said this to his people. He said, if they obeyed him, he would, quote, give the rain for your land in its season. Whereas on the flip side, if they turned away from God, he promised he would shut up the heavens 
so there would be no rain. I wonder, do we believe that? Or do we just say it's a poetic way of speaking? Then much later, do you remember the uh, showdown on Mount Carmel? The one between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What brought that all about? Do you remember? It was rain, or more to the point, the lack of it. Then we read into the New Testament. Why does it rain? Well, Jesus tells us it's God who sends rain on all, both on the just and on the unjust. The Bible seems to spend an awful lot of time trying to persuade us of what seems so obvious. But do we believe it? God sends the rain. And not just the rain, of course, this stands for all of God's provision in his creation. We are, each of us, inescapably, utterly dependent on our creator for every spiritual and material provision that he gives us. The so-called spiritual provisions, that clear in the Bible as well. In Isaiah, we sang it a few moments ago. Did you realize that was Isaiah 55? As the rain comes down from heaven, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, says the Lord. And then here's a little bonus verse for those of us studying Hebrews this year. Maybe as we go over the road, look again at what we saw in Hebrews 6 with this Bible background in mind. See what we see there about the rain. So rain was missing, but not only rain in Genesis 2, because rain is not all that God provides. Not only does God provide what is needed to sustain life, he gives us the life itself. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So life is astonishing. Yes, we take it for granted too often, but there are moments, aren't there, where, so to speak, it takes our breath away. That first breath we take, a gift of God. Every breath we take from God. From God comes life and breath and everything else that we should seek him and know him and enjoy this relationship with him, that rest for which we were created. So as we read on, we've seen God makes plants and the people. So now again, we know, therefore, everything is in place. Humanity is there ready to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. But what's that going to look like? What now? Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So if we think in terms of Google Maps, well, Genesis 1, if you like, is the satellite view, the big picture from afar. But now Genesis 2 is more the street view or even the garden view. And if you look at verse 8, actually the two sentences there give us two headings for the rest of the chapter. First half of verse 8 is then expanded on in verses 9 to 14. Second half of verse 8 in the rest of the chapter. So first of all, beginning of verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So what was this garden like? Well, it was stunning, verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So actually, we're back now to what the Lord does. That's the focus. He creates beauty, a place full of food to nourish and sustain. Lots of trees, no doubt producing a whole range of delicacies. And notice the two trees in particular, 
that are highlighted and stand out? Well, we're going to come back to those in a couple of minutes. But after doing that, the writer then zooms out just a little bit in his garden view in verses 10 to 14, where we're told about these rivers. And we think, well, why are we being told about these four rivers? Well, again, remember the flow of the chapter in Genesis 2. Water is a particular blessing that God gives. And these verses are just a little pointer to what is going to happen in the world God has created. Look how carefully verse 10 is written. Water will come from Eden, from God. It will water the garden with God's blessing. But notice, it won't stop there. It will flow on to these other lands, where there are precious metals, which show, again, the blessing the Lord will pour out far and wide. A little glimpse of where the story of the Bible, where God's activity is going. And this maybe gives us a hint. Pay attention to rivers in the Bible. Very briefly, Psalm 46 speaks of the river which satisfies first the city of God. But then Ezekiel has a vision of a river which is going to flow while well, starting at the temple, but going far and wide and giving life. Jesus promised from him then would flow rivers of living water that would well up to eternal life. And then the closing chapter of the Bible stunningly describes the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and then through the middle of the new Jerusalem with every nation drinking from it. Well, it's a wonderful picture. We've seen some of that fulfillment, haven't we, living this side of Jesus. But it was there right from the start. God determined to bless all the corners of the earth. But anyway, let's get back to the beginning. So God has planted the garden. What then of the man in whom he has breathed into the breath of life? Well, the second half of verse 8, we're zooming back in again, a little closer, garden view, and we're told, there he put the man whom he had formed. There he put the man whom he had formed. And then, if you like, the establishing of man in the garden is described in verses 15 to 25. We're only going to look at verses 15 to 17 now. So first of all, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Look at that first thing we are told. The garden is a place of work. That is, man, humanity, is to use the resources that God has provided to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill that garden, presumably with a view then to going further afield in due course. So before we go on, look at what that tells us immediately about work. Work is not intrinsically bad or a necessary evil, as we sometimes think of it or even speak of it. Work was there right in the beginning, in God's plan for us as humanity, even before the fall. We were made to work, to contribute to the outworking of God's purposes in this world. And so we need to think of work in our world in that way. Today, some will work stacking the supermarket shelves. What a vital link in the chain of getting food from the field to our tables. 
Yes, others will collect our rubbish. But again, how vital is that to take it away so that diseases are prevented and we are healthy and able to work? Others will fix stuff that's broken in various ways. Again, to make things fit for use for people to then work. Others will work so that broken people are fixed. Then they can play their part in this as well. Some will work at home raising the next generation, that they too might serve the Lord and work for him. Some will go out to teach the next generation, helping them to see that all of life is to be lived for God and his ways. Some, many here, will work at a desk or in an office, providing a service maybe. Again, so that people are better placed to make best use of resources to serve the Lord. Some, because of the way they work, it means they get enough money to feed their family, which is as God intended. Maybe some, the work, for some reason, you happen to get paid more than that, maybe a lot more than that. Well, now you know that must be so that that money can be used beyond your family still to serve this agenda of the Lord. And so maybe some here are set aside part-time or even full-time for Bible teaching, ministry, again, working to equip Christians and others to play their part in better serving, the outworking of God's plans in all the earth. And we could, of course, go on with examples like that. But the point is, work is good. It's in there, in God's creation plans. Work is good as it serves to meet material and practical needs, but also to fill the earth with God's glory. And Genesis 2, 1 and 2, is trying to shape how all of us think about our work, how it fits in with this overarching plan of God to fill the earth with his glory. It'll help us to decide what we do for work as and when we have opportunities to make decisions like that. But whatever our work, it'll certainly shape our motivations and aims in the way that we do the work that we have to do. As we think about this, it is worth thinking, of course, who has fully lived according to this God-given pattern for work for humanity? And we know the answer ultimately is only one, and it is such good news for us that he did. We heard about it in our second reading. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus knew, didn't he, there was work to do, a harvest to be gathered in, according to the pattern really set right at the beginning. And then as Jesus said those things we heard, those around him recognized who he really was, the saviour of the world. That is, Jesus was working then to bring about the fulfilment of God's plan right from the beginning, that people from every corner of the earth would share in this delight of knowing their creator and experiencing his rest. So the garden is a place for work, for humanity to do. But then also, in that garden, humanity here is given a choice, a choice to make between life and death. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. As we hear these words, 
Consider the God we have been presented with in Genesis up to this point. A powerful, good, kind, generous God. A God who gives life. A God who delights in beauty. A God who provides for our needs. The God who blesses in such astonishing ways. The God who gives us work to do, to share in his work of filling the earth with his glory. The Lord God, remember, who created humanity to enjoy relationship with him, this wonderful God. And that is what to have in mind as we come to these verses. Then we realize these instructions must be for humanity's good. So many delightful trees from which to enjoy tasty, nourishing food. One tree which even gives life itself. One tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which it is not right to eat, or at least not yet. This must be to help humanity. It must be to help humanity understand God and his world better how to relate to him. It must be to help humanity to learn how to choose rightly. So even if, as Adam heard these words, as we hear these words, Adam didn't know exactly what this tree was for, or he would know straight away, but it must be a part of the plan of the good God. So it must be good for him not to eat from it. So after everything we've seen so far in Genesis 1 and 2, surely, All humanity would want to do would be to do God's will. Surely that would be the right thing to do, to honour God. That would be surely for our good. Surely it wouldn't make any sense. Why on earth would you rebel against a God like this and his instructions? Why would you do that? That would be insane. Surely. Don't do that. Choose life. Choose God's way. Every time. We're here in Genesis in a couple of weeks. The choice Adam made. If you can't wait that long, why not reflect on the choices that you and I will make this coming week? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He gave us life and all that is needed to sustain it day by day, moment by moment. And he made us to know him. Him, the Lord God, to enjoy his rest. And to realize this blessing is not just for a few, just for us. It's for all the world. And we have the privilege of work to play our part to fill the earth with the glory of God. Let's pray as we close. So our Father, we do praise you again for this, your stunning creation, for making us that we might enjoy this blessing of knowing you. Thank you that you provide continually all that we need to live. Thank you for the work that Jesus did as saviour of the world and of us. So now would we do the work you have given to us in such a way that does fill the earth with your glory, and that people near and far would now live all the more to your praise and glory. Amen.